Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. Melody Wilding. You've probably met her because she took over Sidewalk Talk's Instagram Live a year and a half ago. What a dear. She's an executive coach, but she has a master's in psychology, and she's doing all kinds of cool stuff with LinkedIn for LinkedIn Learning. Um, She's written a book called Trust Yourself, Stop Overthinking and Channel Emotions for Success at Work. And she taught me a new phrase that I hadn't ever thought about, but I think it might be true of me. She coined this phrase called sensitive strivers, people that are really driven, but still quite sensitive. I'm like, oh, yes, that's me. The other thing, though, you should know about Melody is that she actually covered me in Sidewalk Talk for Forbes Women. She's got another book coming out on managing up, which I'm really excited about. I kind of am going to read anything that she writes because she writes with a lot of humility. She's also human, and she struggles with some of this stuff herself, and she's not shy about talking about it, which you know I'm not shy talking about this stuff either. So, ah, I love this lady. What a great one. Join me and meet Melody Wilding. Melody, I am... um, I feel honored to get to be in dialogue with you for a bunch of different reasons. One, I admire the clinical work that you do. You're, ama- you're an amazing writer. I love reading the things that you write for Forbes. And thank you so much. That means and a you lot. honored us by doing a small spot on some of the work that we're doing at Sidewalk Talk a couple of years ago. And I just reshared it. And yes. Lots of people commented on it. So I'm really excited to have you here. And share this new baby that you've just birthed, so to speak, in the form of a book. Well, thank you. And I was, it was my pleasure to, to feature you on Forbes because when I first heard about your work, my first reaction was I need to speak to her for, for my column because the work you're doing is so important and just from a meta level, I mean, the, the change that you're creating in communities, but from a higher level, the skills that you are cultivating in people and culturally are teaching people to appreciate is what all of us need more of in our workplaces, in our, in our businesses. And so that's why I wanted to really bring your work and your message to the Forbes audience. And I'm, I'm so glad we could do that. Well, thanks for fan fanning us a little bit. Now I get to return the favor, <laughs> favor because I'm totally into the, to trust yourself in everything that your yeah. book stands for. I, you know, as I work with busy type A's, everything that you talk about mm-hmm. is what I hear in my practice all the time. Mm-hmm. So I got to know a little bit about you and your background. Like, A, how did you even get started in this profession and then working with this particular group of people? 
Yeah. So, you know, I, I think really the the book and all of my work has come about as, as most things do, I think, uh, from my personal lived experiences and from my educational background, clinical work, as you were mentioning. So, you know, by way of, of background, just some of the brass tacks, you know, I, I uh, have a background in psychology. Uh, so I ran a research lab that looked at the relationship between memory and emotion for some time at, at Rutgers University and, you know, loved, I, I, I love psychology all of my life. I have been someone who is more sensitive, who is attuned, observant, perceptive to the world around them. Of course, when I was younger, I did not have the language for that and actually was very uh, critical of myself for that. But those interests, that natural sort of aptitude led me into the field of psychology. And then from my research work, realized that I felt uh, distant from the actual application. Um, you know, when you're, when you're doing research, you're in the lab, you're writing articles, but you don't really get to interact with people or see change on uh, a micro level. And so after my research work, I went on to get my master's at Columbia in social work because I really wanted to get my hands dirty. I wanted to be helping people in all my life. I wanted to be a therapist. That was kind of my dream and what I felt called to do. And social work was, uh, was the path I took to get there. And so, you know, that was, uh, kind of the professional backdrop to all of this, but on the personal side, as I mentioned, you know, I all my life have been been told and and understood that I was more sensitive, empathetic uh, than the people around me. I just really processed the world very differently. Um, and luckily, in my family, that was appreciated and celebrated. But you know, I did all always hear from friends, from society stop taking things too personally. Why are you, you know, why, why do you take everything? Like you're overreacting. It's such a big deal. And so, um, also was very much a high achiever, that type a personality you were talking about hard driving, um, live to exceed expectations in every way, quite a perfectionist, definitely a people pleaser. And so, um, you know, I, I felt like I had followed the path to success that was laid out to me, the, the path that I think most of us think about, which is, you know, be, be a good kid in school, get good grades, go on to a good school, get a good job, and then you're happy. It's kind of this formula for success, right? And so I had done all of that. I had earned high grades in school, graduated at the top of my class, went on to Columbia, as I mentioned. And then when I graduated with my master's, it was the right after the, the height of the Great Recession. And so in a very well-meaning way, I had mentors. Uh, the people around me were cautioning, you know, social work is a very low-paying field, as is being a therapist. So maybe, you know, for financial security, maybe the right thing to do is to go on, go into something that is more secure, like healthcare or technology, something like that. So being the people pleaser that I am, <laughs> I, I listened. I listened to that and I kind of squelched, put aside what my desires were and, um, Went on, I started working for a very fast-paced uh, healthcare center in Manhattan, and it looked like I had it all. You know, I'm sure as you find with many clients and people that uh, you talk to on the sidewalk that from the outside, you would be never, you would never be able to tell that someone was struggling. 
um, you know, in my case, I was accomplished. I lived in New York, which is kind of the pinnacle of success. I had this very promising career path, but on the inside, I was falling apart. So I was extremely frazzled. I was restless. I was depleted. I just felt like a shell of who I was. And, you know, I, I hit a really severe burnout really to the point where I could not get out of bed on weekends. I was, my hair was falling out. I was having heart palpitations and rather than listening to my emotions, rather than seeing them as data, trying to get my attention, I rationalized that I was just a failure. I was inadequate. Something was wrong with me because everybody else had it together and and I didn't. And my solution to that was to keep pushing, to keep overcompensating, trying to work harder, trying to prove more. And I stifled that sensitivity within me. I, I squashed it down. I really felt like I I had a mask on, like a performance. I only wanted people to see what I thought was appropriate for them to see, not the gentler, more vulnerable sides of me. And like I said, that, that really landed me in that very severe burnout. And it almost killed me. It really almost killed me. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. And, uh, that was the crisis moment. That was my low moment. That was the wake up call that, I can't go on like this. Something really terrible is going to happen to me if I continue like this. And luckily, being a clinician, having that background, I had all of the tools. You know, it was kind of staring me right in the face. I had this training uh, of how to turn things around, how to set boundaries, manage my emotions, change my thinking. I just had to use them on myself. And so, you know, my coaching work today came out of that time period because thankfully, on the side of my, um, my lab, uh, my research center job in Manhattan, I had been coaching and working as a therapist to earn extra money on the side to pay off my loans. And, uh, you know, I think you and I share a lot of overlap in the type of clientele we work with. And so I was working with very high achieving career driven people and saw this constellation of, um, challenges, imposter syndrome, self-doubt, the people-pleasing, perfectionism, over-functioning, and really came to see that it fell into two patterns. It fell into a profound you know, sensitivity towards the world, as well as this striving side, this, this high achiever pushing, want to be the best and, and grow yourself sort of side. And that's where you know, the genesis of the book really came about. And now flash forward 10 years, uh, having done this work and really being able to distill um, those tools and the process that I take my clients to into the book. I just can already hear that there's like 10 women in their car right now or jogging, listening to this going, oh my God, I'm not alone. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, uh, even I'm feeling that way, listening to you. Thank you for saying all that out loud. And and I'm not alone. Thank God. And you're not alone. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, gosh. So been there. I, I, what was the wake up call that, because you already went past a burnout and did decide to continue mm-hmm. to do the unhealthy striving. You had all the tools, you did all this training in grad school. I'm just so curious, what was the wake up call where you went, this isn't a way for me to be living? Like what was the yeah. final straw? 
Yeah. And, you know, I'll say that that feeling of just, just to back up a little bit and piggyback on what you were saying about feeling alone, it's very isolating, right? Because so many of us wear masks in our personal lives, professional lives, and, you know, being someone who is more highly sensitive, we're about 20% of the population. So we're one in five people. So it's, this is either you or, or someone, you know, but nevertheless, we're not in the majority. So the, the work world and, and how everything operates is really based on the other 80%. So it, it's no wonder that many of us feel, um, feel different because we are, we just can't, those are invisible. They're, uh, neuro neurological differences. Um, but to, to get back to your question about what was really the breaking point for me, you know, I tell the story in the book, the introduction is actually one of the times that stands out as the, the lightning bolt moment for me, which is, you know, during this whole time period, um, I was, I was at the age where many of my friends were, were getting married. And, uh, one of my best college friends, um, she was having her, her wedding weekend and it was during a very busy time. I had a number of projects. I was working on things on the side and I had told them I was going to go and I was excited. All of my friends were going to be there. It was going to be this amazing weekend and leading up to it. I had this battle, like this inner war waging within myself. You know, one side was like, go have fun. This is such a great opportunity. You haven't seen everyone in such a long time. You need a break. And the louder side was how can you take time away? You're going to be so far behind. You're so lazy. You know what a really hardworking person would do? They would stick around and they would make this happen because do you really need to go hang out with your friends? Can't you do that later? That inner critic side of me was so much louder than the inner voice of trusting myself. And so, you know, leading up to that whole weekend, I had this war and then you can probably guess which one won. And <laughs> I stayed and worked, I stayed and worked and it was a beautiful summer day. And I can remember just being this, in this kind of dingy Starbucks in Manhattan. If you've ever been in a Starbucks in Manhattan, you probably know what I mean. It's like sticky and smelly sometimes. And just looking around me and saying, what? what has my life come to that I'm just sitting here with my computer doing work when I could be with my best friends. I had put something that could be done tomorrow ahead of once in a lifetime moments. And to me, that was the light bulb moment where my values are completely out of whack and my behavior is is not something I am proud of. It's I'm extremely ashamed of this. And my friends were mad at me, rightfully so. And, um, you know, in a, in a good way, that was that kind of, that was one of those light bulb moments as was a time where, you know, I could not get out of bed. And I just remember thinking, you know, I'm going to have a heart attack and I could die and I, I could be young. And what would people say about me at my funeral? And that, that was very eye-opening to me and just um, unacceptable, completely unacceptable. And so those two moments really stick out as, um, and they were in close succession to one another um, as really kind of the catalyst for the change. Mm. Oh, we could have a, a whole tea party and talk about <laughs> this, my oh, friend. Yeah. <laughs> Next time I'm out your way, we're going to go have some yeah. lunch. 
Yeah. So now you help people that are, are, are essentially living this kind of sort of unhealthy striving kind of lifestyle is, is kind of how I, I see it from, from the way you put yourself out there. What do you think is the, the, you know, I want to give some folks that are listening something actionable. What do you think are a couple things first that we can sort of use as a guide to check ourselves as a starting point Mm -hmm. that we might be going in the direction of unhealthy work relationship? Are there some tools Mm -hmm. or tips that you have for that? Yes. So in the book, uh, there's a concept I talk about that I call the honor roll hangover, which is this uh, addiction to achievement, external validation, the the unhealthy side of the striving, because both um, sensitivity and striving, so sensitive striver, that, that term I've come up with, it's a tremendous strength when leveraged correctly. But if we let both of those sides of ourselves go unmanaged and unleveraged, then we have some of these downsides, right? So the the honor roll hangover is really a form of achievement addiction that follows sensitive strivers from our childhood into our adult lives, work, workplace, professional lives. So this is, I, I call it a hangover <laughs> because um, it's, it's the result of those old behaviors, but it leads to the same types of feelings you might have after a night of drinking <laughs> too much, um, anxiety, worry, uh, fatigue, all of that. So the honor roll hangover is usually one of the biggest blockers to trusting yourself and to really becoming a more empowered, balanced, sensitive striver. And uh, with it, you know, some signs of it, you are fixated on goal setting. You set a lot of goals, um, you enjoy hitting them, but if you don't have something that you're moving towards, you feel like you're worthless, right? Like you're never doing enough. Um, If you're not the best, you're not good enough. You have to be number one and anything less than an A plus on anything feels like a failure. And I will oftentimes have clients literally say to me, I feel like I'm getting an F at work or I'm not, I'm not able to give a plus effort right now. We get so caught up and that's the honor roll hangover coming through, you know, loud and clear. Uh, you think there's one right way to do something. So you're very conscientious, but you get very caught on that sort of all or nothing thinking that there is only one right way that things need to be done and you are probably not doing it the right way. (laughs) Um, You crave validation. So you crave gold stars, uh, praise, um, any, any sort of external markers of your success and people telling you, patting you on the back that you're doing good work. And so there are three elements to the honor roll hangover, which you might pick up on in what I just said, but the honor roll hangover is really made up of three elements, which are perfectionism, people pleasing and overfunctioning. So perfectionism is that, um, trying to prove yourself. So not necessarily wanting to be perfect because most very self-aware people realize that that's not possible. But self, um, I'm sorry, perfectionism is really about overemphasizing your weaknesses and underestimating your strengths. So with perfectionism, 
it's that preoccupation with feeling like you have to appear shiny, impeccable on the outside so that no one sees how you're suffering within. So it's really characterized by that harsh self-criticism and judgment. Um, And then we have people-pleasing. So most people know people-pleasing, but uh, specifically in the workplace, it may look like um, going along with somebody else's idea, even when you don't agree with it. Um, Really, it's about seeking and having a strong desire for other people's approval and low regard for your own opinions and judgments. So you put everybody else's thoughts and feelings ahead of your own. And then last is over-functioning, which is probably one of the biggest areas I work with clients on. And over-functioning is really about taking on more responsibility than, than is yours. So as an over-functioner, you may um, take on other people's work. You may be the one who swoops in to fix situations for your team or your family. You may cover for other people. You try to take on uh, responsibility for other people's emotions which and control situations or try to manipulate and um, uh, massage situations so you get a certain outcome from, from someone. Um, so that's what I would offer people is to think about how you might see those three elements of the honor roll hangover, perfectionism, people-pleasing, over-functioning coming up in your life, because really being able to shake that to put it in its place is really key to moving on and and getting the best out of your qualities as a sensitive striver. Love this. Check, check, check. Yeah. They're all me. Get it all. Even though I'm like gregarious and outgoing, I think that doesn't mean just because you're gregarious and outgoing doesn't mean that you're not sensitive. 100%. And when I hear these things, um, there's a question that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think about, and I'm going to get a little political here. Some of this may come from gender training mm-hmm. where some of this may come from our family, which yep. that's kind of the lens of psychotherapy. Yes. And some of this can come from our culture, sure. you know, and then I not only was raised in a capitalist society, but I came up, came up in the Silicon Valley mm-hmm. and I got to share a funny story with you. Yeah. I remember I was sitting at a table outside of my office, not even in my office. And the CEO walks by and he said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm trying to get these letters out the door that you asked me to do. I was was in sales. And he said, you know, Ruble, because everybody always called me, but still people that knew me in in corporate life and in high school still call me by my last name. You know what, Ruble? The problem with you is you don't know the difference between when you need to use C-level work and A-level work. You just do A-level work Mm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And that just speaks to this perfectionism piece that you were just speaking to. And it speaks to the Mm over-functioning for sure. And probably the people pleaser. Yes. Yes. So, so much. That's such a great example. And I had a client uh, last week who was telling me, you know, a question she asked her team all the time to, to keep the team in check, because this sort of mentality, as you were saying, can pervade our entire culture, but also, you know, organizational cultures. And so she said in meetings, she'll often ask her team, you know, where can we shoot for B minus work here to shake them out of the fact that not if everything is a priority, nothing is a priority. And so that, that idea can be very helpful. Um, but you are absolutely right that the 
sort of stigma against sensitivity is um, it's intersectional, right? And uh, coming from a social work background, you know, our, our whole idea is, is person in environment. And so our environment makes up everything from the culture that we're in. So much of this mindset, specifically around the achievement mindset, we get from schooling, right? That, that idea of there's this kind of predictable, follow the steps and you will be successful. And that's not how the real world works. So, so many of us try to be striving for those gold stars, but in work life, though that doesn't really exist. That path doesn't exist. It takes a different skill set to be successful. Um, also comes from the the stigma of no one it, oftentimes people say to me, why did you use the term sensitive striver? No one wants to be sensitive. And it personally, I completely disagree with that. Um, but I think it's because it has carried such a, the term has carried such a negative connotation that we see, we equate sensitive with being weak, fragile, overly emotional and reactive, right? And that's not the case. It's, it's a very misunderstood term. And so I'm hoping, and I think much of your walk, uh, much of your work with sidewalk talk is, is aim towards this in terms of valuing those skill sets and actually infusing them back into our culture and in positive ways. Oh, I like you have a platform to like let your activism cat out of the bag (laughs) a little bit. I love, I love that you're trying to get us to reclaim the word sensitive Mm -hmm. because what you were talking about, you know, your family supported your sensitivity. Mine did not. Mm -hmm. And I remember, uh, I don't know if you had to do this in grad school, but in my grad school, in our family systems class, mm-hmm. you actually brought your family in Whoa. and the lead therapist would do family therapy <gasps> with your family wow. in front of the class. And in my, and if your family couldn't come in because they weren't local, your classmates would call and do a two or three hour interview with the family member that they were going to role play. Oh my goodness. And I remember distinctly the thing that, uh, my colleague who role-played my mother said, she said, well, I was always hard on you because I just wanted to make sure that you were good and calloused Mm. because you were too sensitive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. That is, and it, yeah. Yeah. Right. And it reminds me of how much there is to unpack. I mean, this isn't, people can't just I mean, people are going to be helped by reading your book, but people may also still need to come to see you as well, because there are layers to this that just the aha and the intellectual awareness Mm -hmm. may not take us all the way there, that we also need to sort of unpack, gosh, am I being disloyal to my family Mm -hmm. if I really acknowledge that I'm really sensitive? Mm -hmm. Or am I being disloyal to the ideas that I have about my self-worth that somehow if I let myself rest, that that means I'm not a good worker or, you know, all those things. And I know that I have to confront that every dang day, Melody. Mm-hmm. Do you still, do you still have to check yourself? Oh yes. All the time. And, you know, tell I, me I, more. Well, I think that's, <laughs> you know, in a way, I think that's a beautiful thing in the way it's meant to be. If we were complete, what fun would that be? <laughs> we would, we would stop growing. And so, you know, as the striver side of me always wants a challenge. And so I am always pushing myself and every new level I reach pulls back another layer from the onion. And I have to confront, you know, beliefs. I really relate to what you were talking about in terms of work and 
I've really had to um, disconnect the idea of productivity and self-worth that I'm only as good. I, I'm only as good as what I do. Um, and I, a day is only good if I have worked really hard. Um, and this idea, I think, um, uh, specifically one I've really had to unpack recently is that idea that, um, the amount of time and effort I put into something equals the quality of it. And sometimes I, especially as a person who is more intuitive, I wonder if you find this as well, that sometimes I can just get a download or something just clicks for me and I can do it in a short amount of time. And it's good work. I'm happy with it. It's high quality. It is going to make a difference and an impact for people. Uh, and sometimes I can spend six hours trying to force myself to do something and it's, it's not, it's not as high impact or as good. And so really disconnecting that idea from, you know, but in share time is what is where the value is in work. Um, I've really had to decouple those things, but, you know, as I continue to push myself in my career and in my business, it's new level, new devil. And, you know, you have to confront a new layer of those beliefs and different parts of yourself. Uh, you hit a new ceiling on, on your, on your limiting beliefs and what you have to look at. And so absolutely, I, I'm, I still have to work through these things because every season of my life presents a new dimension of it. Right. Um, so I, I kind of like the challenge. Boy, there were some really fun quotables in that new level, new devil. <laughs> I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love this, this idea that, mm, you get a download. And I, what came to mind when you said that, Melody, is I'm like, yeah. And so the work isn't like the button chair time. It's the time that we create so that we can be more intuitive. Yeah. Because I know for me, I have to go be in nature every day. And someone said to me, wait a minute, you go for like an hour and a half jog every day. Where do you make the time for that? I said, man, if I go for a 90 minute run mm -hmm. and come back, don't, I'm not running the whole time. I, I walk and meditate in the middle just so folks don't get too impressed with me. Um, but when I come back, I get my work done at lightning yep. speed because yep. I'm just in the intuitive flow. Mm -hmm. And that's, that is classic. I'm going to just uh, assume you identify as a sensitive shriver and, and I know you're highly empathetic and that is classic because we need processing time, right? We need processing space and time and neurologically speaking, we're wired differently. If you look at um, research on the highly sensitive brain, we have more activation in, in areas related to mental processing. So our brains make novel connection. We see nuances. We spot opportunities that other people miss. We synthesize and are able to uh, take in and, and process complex information more deeply which is why on your run, you're having those great insights. And I can absolutely relate to that because this book took five years to come to fruition. And oh, God bless you for telling the <laughs> truth about how oh, long it took you to do that. Yes. And you know, the first four of them were just wrestling with what I was trying to say. I had no idea what I was trying to say. I knew it was in there. You know, when you have that feeling that something the idea is there, but you can't quite articulate it and put your finger on it. I just wrestled with it for four years. I wrote three different versions of the proposal, threw them out, 
And finally, when I landed on this idea of being a sensitive striver, it was like everything coalesced and within uh, eight or nine months had the entire book written. And so it, it, sometimes it just, it takes that long, but as you were saying, um, you just, you get those downloads and you're able to get something done much faster. And that's the beauty of, of our processing. I'm feeling, I'm feeling really touchy feeling listening to you right now, (laughs) hearing about this book. I feel, um, hopeful and I feel excited Mm -hmm. And I feel a lot of gratitude to you because I can tell in just this dialogue that you and I are having that there is so much authenticity here and so much, so much of a, a will or desire to serve that this isn't Melody building a brand and a platform for herself. This is Melody saying, hey, look, there are a lot of people that are sensitive strivers mm-hmm. and they are made to be outsiders or mm-hmm thought of as strange and I want to make a place for them and I want them to feel good about themselves Mm -hmm. and I want them to lead healthy lives. I can feel it talking to you, the intention. And I just feel, I just want you to know, I feel super touched. Oh, well, thank you for, for sharing that and reflecting that back to me. And and that means the world because 100%, you know, this is, it means nothing more to me than when I hear someone say, even just hearing the term sensitive striver helped so much click in my life. And now I recognize that I'm not alone. And sometimes that can be just the, the mindset shift to step into seeing these qualities as strengths. But what's really remarkable, you know, I think we've seen particularly over the last administration, what happens when empathy and perceptiveness and deliberate, uh, critical thinking is missing. (laughs) Um, But when we look ahead, you know, I've been spending a a lot of time looking at uh, research reports that are talking about the future of work and what we'll need to be successful in our organizations and innovate, you know, 10, 5, 10 years down the road. And it reads like a, all the top qualities read like a laundry list of things sensitive strivers exemplify. Things like empathy, emotional intelligence, uh, listening skills, communication, complex thinking, problem solving. It's all of the human skills. I, I don't like to call them soft skills because I think it naturally devalues them. But it's all of those human skills that we uniquely bring to the table. And I deeply believe that if sensitive strivers feel more empowered or in more positions of leadership, that everyone wins when that's the case. Yeah. Cause I imagine we create more human workplaces as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And we know those are more successful, you know, workplaces that have psychological safety, trust, people feel, uh, people can thrive. Yeah. Yeah. So I did have one quick question and then I know that yeah. we're nearing the end of our time. Do you think that more millennials or some of the younger folks coming up are more sensitive than maybe some of the older generation, or is that just a culture thing? It's so interesting because I I get this question quite a bit and, you know, I never, I'm a millennial myself. So I think that's why I never gave much thought to it. Um, but I will tell you anecdotally that most of the people in my community and most of my clientele are baby boomer, more like Gen X. Uh, and so I always found that really fascinating because when I started doing this work, I definitely expected it 
to skew younger, you know, millennial Gen Z, where we're more just kind of in touch. And that has been, uh, you know, sensitivity has been more celebrated. And uh, I think the younger generation, we've been taught to be more open about those things and that's okay. Um, But I will say that, that most of my community and clients are a little bit of an older generation. Uh, And so I think, I think that has to do with self-awareness. I think that has to do with um, uh, just understanding and having the wisdom of, of how you operate. Um, So it's interesting because I, I, it hasn't exactly been my experience that most uh, more millennials are more sensitive. You know, I think the uh, Dr. Elaine Aaron, who originally did the research on, on high sensitivity and coined this term, um, her research has found that it, it is about 20%. I've seen some newer research that says it may be more like 30% of the population that has this genetic trait difference that leads to a highly attuned nervous system, which is basically all sensitivity is. Um, and so I think there is something to be said for, again, nature versus nurture. Um, the nurture side of it is that perhaps the younger generations have been brought up in a culture where it's okay to talk about your feelings. And um, certainly in the workplace, the millennials I work with have a lot higher value and expectation on being in more human workplaces. They want cultures of feedback. They really look for jobs and assess their team and their manager on the degree of psychological safety, which I don't think older generations do as much. So I know that is an exact answer to your question, but uh, hopefully sheds some insight. It sparked a, a thought in me. You mm-hmm. know, there's a lot of, I experience a lot of pushback from folks in Gen X and mm-hmm. baby boomer generation saying, oh, those millennials are too sensitive. But what just occurred to me is that could be a reaction to my or their rejection of their own sensitivity mm-hmm. that was never welcomed. Yes. Whereas I find that Millennial sensitivity was welcomed by their yes. culture and parents, mm-hmm. but we can kind of thumb our noses at them because we're a little jealous that they get to be so sensitive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They've I learned to be calloused, right? Yes. Yep. Because mm. I, I actually find millennials to be delightful. I think it's they've challenged my management abilities because yes. it's not the stu- the staid way that I've learned to manage people. Mm-hmm. But man, if there's a group of people that's going to change the world, it's going to be these folks. That's my feeling anyway. Hey, I I will take that. I think that's a wonderful sentiment. (laughs) I just, that's how I feel. Yeah. So I know we're at the end of our time. And I said to you before we started that we have this fun little ritual that we do here as a way to sort of close our time together, Melody. And it's really where I get out of your way. And I invite you to speak either a wish or words of wisdom or there's no pressure. Somebody sang an opera last week, <laughs> which was really wonderful. fun. Yeah. Um, directly to the listeners that sit on sidewalks around the world. What would you want to offer to them or share to them? I would want to share to them that you are not crazy for being so affected by everything around you. The fact that you are doing this work, that you are receptive and perceptive and empathetic to other people's needs is your superpower and find other ways to lean into that fully and let that be your greatest strength because it's a gift to yourself and a gift to the world. I'm going to get that on a short reel. That was so good, Melody. 
Uh, such a, I just feel so honored to have you here. And for everyone listening, clearly I'm going to have to go buy it. This is going to be one of the books that I'm going to have to buy in hard copy and lug back to the U.S. when I move back from Germany. But of course, this one's going to have to be on my the hard copy bookshelf. Trust Yourself is out. It came out May 4th, I believe, right? Yes, or that's right. No, no, May 4th is when it's coming out. Yeah. May 4th is when it's coming out. Yes. Okay. Star Wars Day. Is that Star Wars Day? Well, may the fourth be with you. So I'm, I'm hoping oh. it's good, a good omen. Are you a Star Wars fan? Not that big of one, but every time I say it, I, I work with a lot of people who are. May the fourth <laughs> be with you. Okay. That's right. So, but I think it's out on Audible now. I mean, not Audible, but Kindle now, no? Uh, you can pre-order it in any format. So okay. hard copy, uh, Kindle, Ooh. audiobook, uh, all of those are available. Um, I'm yeah. going to be writing you a review. I'll tell oh, you that much. means a lot. Thank you. So. Um, Again, for those of you that are listening in, we'll have links to where you can get a copy of Trust Yourself and where you can follow Melody. And again, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure. It was all my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.